Well, good morning. Welcome to Calvary Castle Rock. Um, excited that you're all here. Is everybody from the church here this morning? Possibly looking at all the faces here. Wow. Look at all you people. Unbelievable. You know, we just got back from Israel and somebody asked me, go, are you ever going to say what happened in Israel? Every time you come back, it's kind of like you don't say anything. And I, and I go, wow, you, that's true. I don't, <laughs> you know, um, but I just want you to know it is an absolutely blessed experience to be able to go to Israel. And I know, you know, it seems to be getting a little bit more expensive. That has nothing to do with us. That has to do with them. Okay. Um, but I, I got to tell you, every time we take a group, that group comes back a little bit more excited about the word of God because they're seeing things that they have been reading in the word of God. And you're going, man, this is amazing, you know, and it kind of makes the, the, uh, the word of God from black and white come into color. Okay. And so it just kind of adds a little giddy up in your step when you come back. And so we are going to be having another meeting. Uh, I believe it is next Sunday after second service uh, for those who want to go to Israel in November. So I really do encourage you to go. Uh, if you, you know, pray about it. Um, if you're doing the Financial Peace University, get out of debt so you can save, so you can go, because I think it'll really, really bless you guys. And, uh, and I love Israel. And I love going to Israel. And I love taking people to Israel. I have a real passion about Israel. And I have a real passion about God's word. You know, when you're seeing Financial Peace University and you see Dan Dave Ramsey just screaming and yelling and stuff like that, that's how I feel about every time we begin a new book. <laughs> I'm so excited about the book of Exodus, what we get to go through here this morning. And really, all we're going through this morning is an intro. Now, we're going to go over probably the first eight or nine, ten verses or whatever, but next week we're going to go back on some of these verses, you know, to begin our time. Uh, I'm going to show you the, the, the dynasties and things like that of Egypt, but uh, for this morning we have our introduction. So, before we start our introduction here in Exodus, I want you to go to Psalm 66. We, pro we have it up here. I think we do have it on the slide, so, um, but it's good for you to go to it anyway, all right? I believe that we will get to know the living God as we go through the book of Exodus in a way that maybe we haven't seen yet, all right? In Psalm 66, verse 5, it says, Come see the works of God. Man, we're going to see some really incredible works of God. We're going to see the 10 plagues. We're going to see him, you know, part the Red Sea. We're going to see him show up in amazing ways, just absolutely amazing ways. And so he is awesome in his doing towards the sons of men. So true. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. This is a big deal. Parting the Red Sea is a huge, huge deal. Not just in the miracle of itself, but everything it represents. And one of the things it represents, baptism. We'll see that when we get there. And there... It says, they went through the river on foot. There we will rejoice in him. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. And so come see, and we're going to see God in his glorious and gracious and loving and redemptive way. There's going to be many things 
in the books of Exodus that we're going to see the picture of the person of Jesus himself and how it has practical application in our lives. The book of Exodus will also foreshadow, give a picture of the future as well. Exodus is a prophetic book. History does indeed repeat itself. And what is recorded in Exodus will be a picture of Israel in the latter days. Israel in the tribulation period will be even worse than in the days of Moses. A greater tyrant than Pharaoh will be raised up by God to chastise the nation. Groaning and crying more intense and pitiful will ascend into heaven than during this time period. Plagues even more fearful than those sent upon the land of Egypt will yet be poured out upon the world from the vials of God's wrath. God again will send forth two witnesses empowered by his spirit to show forth mighty signs and wonders, but their testimony shall be rejected as it was with Moses and Aaron. Servants of Satan, supernaturally empowered, will perform greater sorcery than the magicians of Egypt. A remnant of Israel shall again be found in the wilderness, there to be sustained by God. And in the end shall come forth the great deliverer, who will vanquish the enemies of his people by greater judgments than that which overtook the Egyptians at the Red Sea. And finally, there shall be a greater exodus than that of Egypt. When the Lord shall gather uh, Israel, the outcasts of Israel from the uttermost parts of the uttermost parts of the world and take them to the uttermost parts of heaven. And so we're going to see this as we go through the book of Exodus. My desire that as we carefully go through the book of Exodus, Psalm 119, 162, that I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. As we journey into this great book of Exodus, that is my desire, that we will discover great treasure in this book. It's again my belief in the study of Scripture. There is reason for every date that we come across, every time, every place, every name that is mentioned in Scripture, It's all led by the Holy Spirit, which has meaning beyond the local significance in which it is spoken as we read it. There are many models and types that we're going to see through this book. A type is a picture of a future reality. We see this in the Passover lamb as a type of the future of the Lord Jesus Christ. As John the Baptist points to him and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. We're going to see that here in Exodus. We're going to see many different types in Exodus. We're going to see here Israel, a type of the believer. We're going to see Egypt as the type of the world. We're going to see bondage as a type of sin. We're going to see Pharaoh as a type of our adversary, Satan. We're going to see Moses as a type of the Redeemer, Jesus. We're also going to see Jesus as a type very often in the book of Exodus. We're going to see him in the burning bush. We're going to see Jesus and Moses himself. We're going to see Jesus in the Passover lamb. We're going to see Jesus in the crossing of the Red Sea. We're going to see Jesus in the tabernacle. We're going to see Jesus in the manna in the wilderness. Manna, bread. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. We're going to see Jesus in the manna in the wilderness. And we're going to see Jesus as the smitten rock. Because out of that rock came what? Waters of living waters. Okay. 
There's also great contrast in Exodus when it comes to Egypt. Exodus, I'm sorry, Egypt, man, their focus was always on death. It was always on death. The great literary contribution that they have given to the world is the book of the dead. Yay, thank you for that. Those are great bedtime reading, by the way. They focus all their literature, science, art, seems to focus on death, embalming the dead. Great tombs built for the royal dead. (laughs) It, It just amazes me. We're royalty. All that means is that you're royal dead, okay? But you're still dead. Whereas God is the God of the living. Our God is the God of the great I am. I am that was and is and forever will be. Jesus says our God is the God of the living, not the dead, not the dead. And so since death was always looming large in Egypt, Egypt deified all lusts and passions that you can participate in now, as all false religions do, because you're going to die. Because you're going to die. Exodus is full of prophecy. Speaks of the ultimate redemption of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that in the Passover lamb and many other things in this book. We're going to see the seven feasts of the religious calendar. And we're going to see that they all speak of Jesus. The first three, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, they all speak of Jesus' first coming. It's wild. The fourth feast, Pentecost, or Feast of Weeks, speaks of the church age, speaks of the body of Christ. That's what we're in now. And there's still three more feasts coming on the prophetic calendar. And that is the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacle. This all speaks of Jesus' second coming. As the church body, as being in the church age, we look forward to the next feast because the next feast, the Feast of Trumpet, speaks of the rapture. And it's going to be really exciting when we get there and we get to talk about all this stuff. The, the only down, downside to this is, is that, well, the rapture could come before we even get there. You know, that's a huge possibility with the way I teach. We kind of go long. We kind of take our time as we go through God's word. And so we're going to go in much detail about these things in our study here in Exodus. Don't be deceived in thinking this is only a historical book a timepiece. It has incredible application today. In Romans 15, verse 4, it says this, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. There's a tremendous connection between the book of Exodus and the previous book, the book of Genesis. We see that in the very first words here. Go here to Exodus chapter 1. 
Now, these are the names. That's how it starts here. Now, these are the names. Actually, it starts here. It says, now these. The Hebrew word here is ve'ale. I want you to see this right here. So, you have this right here, which is a vav, okay? Anytime you have a vav before a word, it always means a conjunction. Here, it means and. This book begins with and. And these names is what is being said here. And so it connects it with what? Genesis. So you you, you have... Uh, Joseph and his family left there as we left them the last time there in Egypt. They are now all in Egypt. Jacob's whole family is now in Egypt. And so it continues here in this book by saying, and these names, and there's that connection. And what does it do? It then lists the names of those of Jacob's household, 70, 70. And so we see Exodus as a continuation or connection to the book of Genesis. We also see a connection when you look at the book of Genesis and look at the book of Exodus. We see that Genesis is a birth of a family, Abraham and his offspring. And in Exodus, we see the birth of a nation. In Genesis, it ends with Israel down in Egypt, welcome and honored. We're going to see here in Exodus, it begins with Israel being very disrespected and in bondage to Egypt. In Genesis, Abraham is a story of a few. Here we're going to see Moses and a story of millions. In Genesis, Pharaoh knows Joseph and his God. In Exodus, Pharaoh who knows not Joseph or his God. In Genesis, a lamb was promised in Genesis 22. In Exodus, a lamb is given in Exodus chapter 12. The title Exodus gets its title, it's a Greek word, gets its title from the Septuagint. This word here in Greek, exodos, means departure or going out, okay? Understand that this is the Greek title for this book. Much like Genesis was the Greek title for Genesis. In the Hebrew Bible, the actual title for Genesis is Bereshit, in beginning, okay? But the Greek name here is that you have Jewish scholars who translated the Jewish scriptures into Greek at about 250 uh, BC. And they did that because the majority of the Jewish people spoke Greek. And so they want to bring it into their language so they understood their Hebrew scriptures. And by doing that, they changed the, the titles to these books to now speak more of its content. Hence, the word Genesis is a Greek word that means origins. Okay, Here in Exodus, they decided not to name it what it is in the Hebrew Bible, which is Aleshem, okay, which means these names. So the title of the book in the Hebrew is These Names, okay? But when they translated into the Greek, they decided to change the name into the content. And what is the content of the book of Exodus? It is the going out, the departure from who? From, from Egypt. And so that's where it gets its name. 
Exodus is one of the five books that Moses wrote. This is known as the Pentateuch, means meaning five books, Genesis, Exodus, okay, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, also known as the Torah, meaning teaching. There's this ridiculous hypothesis out there that was brought about by some ridiculous men from Germany during the late 1800s. They developed this thing called textual criticism. This is to be rejected, okay? Anyone that believes in textual criticism is an unbeliever, okay? And so they came up with this documentary hypothesis, which attempts to attribute the five books of Moses to other people. Now, what I love about the word of God, and I love how God does this, is that he always knew, because he is God, that these pseudo-intellectuals would come along trying to discredit that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And it kind of makes me laugh because Scripture interprets Scripture. You have Old Testament authors as well as Jesus himself giving testimony that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And I'm sorry, but if Jesus says Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, I'm going to believe Jesus. Go ahead and waste your time. It's amazing to me how many men have taken on the endeavor to try and disprove certain things in the Bible, and there's volumes that they've dedicated their life to. All is vanity. It's worthless. And yet this is what you have committed your life to do. Amazing to me. Jesus said in Mark 12, 26, but concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses? In the burning bush passage. Where's that? Exodus. How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He says that in Exodus 3, 6. Jesus just called that the book of Moses. Thus attributing that Moses is the one that wrote Exodus there. In Nehemiah, we read in verse 1, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law, thus showing that the book of the law of Moses and the law are, are one and the same thing. Before the assembly of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding of the first day of the seventh month. So the book of the law of Moses, the law, are the same thing. When you read the law of Moses or the law, the book of Moses or Moses' writings, they're all interchangeable. They're saying the same thing. Here are some examples that we have where uh, it's spoken of as a book of Moses or book of the law of Moses or the law of Moses or the law or the writings of Moses. Here you have in 2 Chronicles 24, 25, verse 4, quoting from Deuteronomy 24, 16, calling it, in the law, Book of Moses, thus affirming that Deuteronomy was written by Moses. In Ezra 6, 18, quotes from Numbers 3, 6 through 9, calls it the Book of Moses, thus that was written by Moses, Numbers. You have Mark 12, 26, which we just read, quotes from Exodus, Jesus himself giving testimony that Moses wrote the book of Exodus. In Luke 2, 22, it's spoken of there as the law of Moses, as 
Leviticus 12 is being quoted, thus again giving testimony that Leviticus was written by Moses. John 7, 22 through 23, speaking of circumcision from the law of Moses, he's quoting from Leviticus 12 as well as Genesis 17. Again, giving confirmation written by Moses. And so again, we we're told here, Scripture interprets Scripture. Old Testament uh, authors, as well as Jesus himself, bringing testimony that five first five books was written by Moses. We see on the, the road to Emmaus after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and Jesus shows up and is seen on the road of Emmaus uh, after the resurrection, and he says this to two of his disciples. He says in verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets... He expounded them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Beginning in Moses, that means Genesis through Deuteronomy. We were able to see in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 15, as well as Genesis 5 and Genesis 22, how that spoke of Jesus. We just finished that. And all the prophets, major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, including the minor prophets, they all spoke of Jesus. And so if you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as a Christian, you can save yourself a lot of trouble by just believing what the scriptures say. To believe what is plainly taught in the word of God. And what is plainly taught is that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. You see, when someone claims to be a Christian and tries to create doubt on the word of God, well, guess what? They are the ambassador of their father, Satan. Because G Satan was the one that came along and said, did God really say? Did Moses really write? Did... You're of your father, Satan. Because that's what Satan tried to do, cast doubt on the word of God. So... I don't know about you, I believe Jesus, and I believe what the Word of God says. We just finished going through the book of Genesis, book of origins, book of beginnings. It's in Genesis that we see the first humans in Adam and Eve. We see the beginning of the institution of marriage and the family unit that God ordained from the very beginning. We saw the first sin leading to the fall in the garden. We saw the first sacrifice for sin in the lamb, showing us the, the doctrine of substitution. We first see worship being in the sacrifice being offered. We see the beginning of the doctrine of election for service with Abel, then Noah, then Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then Joseph. And so the focus of Genesis is creation and the beginning of things. Marvelous book. We loved going through it. I loved going through it. But I would say that Exodus, I, I have more of affinity to. I have more of a love of because Exodus speaks of redemption. That's way more beneficial for me and for you to know that I've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. That's exciting. That's very exciting. And so the theme, the focus of Exodus is actually redemption. We see the theme of Exodus here, redemption, Exodus chapters one through 15. We're going to see the consecration, 
Exodus 16 through 24. We're going to see what worship is all about there in Exodus 25, verse 40. Redemption means the the purchase back of something that has been lost or payment of a price or ransom is what that word means. Consecrations mean set apart for God. Worship is right relationship with God for service. The redeeming of the people out of bondage, we're going to see this kind of unfold in five ways. The need of redemption pictured by the people's captivity in chapters one through six. They're in bondage. They're in bondage. The might of the Redeemer displayed by the power of the plagues that are brought down on Egypt in chapters 7 through 11. We get to see the character of the redemption, the purchase by blood set free by the power in chapters 12 through 18. We get to then see the duty of the redeemed. Obedience to the Lord in chapters 19 through 24. And yet we're going to be able to see the provisions made for the failure of the redeemed are seen in the tabernacle and services in chapters 25 through 40. The tabernacle is given as proof that God knew we were going to fail. And so the tabernacle is actually a place of cleansing, a place of reestablishment of fellowship, and it's the same today. Who is our tabernacle? It's Jesus. And we're still going to make mistakes. And we're still going to sin, but we have Jesus and his blood has covered us and taken away our sin, past, present, and even future sin. And I praise God for that. I praise God for that. Exodus is a picture of the gospel of Jesus. And as we've seen in Luke 24 on the day of the resurrection again, I just want to read this again. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus shows that the scriptures speak of him. It speaks of the gospel, the good news. Genesis through Revelation, we see it all. We see it all. So let's begin here the book of Exodus. Now, some of you might be going, wait a minute, Dave. We know the author, okay? But what about the date of Exodus? When did all this happen? Well, we're going to get into that in a moment. We'll be able to get into it a little bit more next week as well, okay? But here in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Now, again, Exodus, you're departing out of something, okay? And as we get into the book of Exodus here, we're going to see that, that God is going to raise up Moses, you know, to set his people free. They're going to depart from Egypt, and they're going to be saved from the bondage of slavery, or in our case, the bondage of sin, okay? And I've, I've often seen this when it comes to uh, Christians. And I would say I was stuck in this for a while as well. Very excited to hear about Jesus and what he has done for me. My salvation was true. And I love the fact that Jesus died for my sin and that I'm not gonna have to spend eternity separated from him. But now I have all of eternity that I'm going to be with him. Praise God, I'm so thankful for my salvation that you paid the price for my sin. I'm so excited about that. That guess what? I don't have hell as a future. I have heaven as a future. But for the longest time, I saw myself being saved from something. And that's incomplete, and that's true. I've been saved from hell. I've been saved from the penalty of sin. I've been saved from that, and I'm excited about that, and that is great. 
but I've also been saved for something. And as we'll see here, as we go through God's word here in the book of Exodus, we're going to see that the people are being called out of Egypt to do what? To go serve the living God. And I think I missed that for the longest time. And I wasn't in service. I was just more thankful for what he did for me that I didn't understand that I now no longer have just been saved from something, but for something. And that is where you get your purpose. That is where you get your meaning as you walk here in this world, when you understand that. And so here we are in Exodus chapter one. It says, and these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons for Joseph was in Egypt already. And so as we've already seen, uh, there's a conjunction that begins here. Uh, and again, and these names uh, of the children of Israel, thus connecting the book to Genesis. We left off with 70 people in Egypt. We begin here with 70 people of Joseph's family. So it starts with that. And then verse six, and Joseph died. So now we're going to continue on to what happened after Joseph. Okay. Well, after Joseph died, guess what? All his brothers, all that generation, meaning they also died. Verse seven, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied, grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So the book of Exodus is going to show us what happened after the generation of Joseph. Well, guess what? They had children, and they had children, and they kept on multiplying. And so by the time we're here in Exodus, Joseph and that generation is now gone, is now gone. Now, Briefly, just go back here to Genesis chapter 15. Just turn it over. Genesis chapter 15, God before Abraham telling him, you know, uh, of his future and things like that. And in Genesis 15 verse 4, God is speaking to Abraham and he says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. So it's not Ishmael that you did in the flesh. There's another heir that's going to come. That's going to be Isaac. From your own body shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven, count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So from this heir that's going to come, guess what? Your descendants are going to be, there's going to be so many. It's going to be like the stars in the sky. You're not going to be able to count them just like you won't be able to count your descendants that is coming. Verse 13 says, then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants that will come through Isaac will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Well, he's given them the land of Canaan. So what land are they going to that isn't theirs that they're going to be strangers in? Egypt, which is where we are right now in Exodus. And then he says, and they will serve them. So you're going to go to a place that's not yours that I haven't given to you, and you're going to serve those people there. And he says, and they will afflict them for 400 years. 
And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. So again, he's telling them, said, look, the way that this nation is going to begin is by you being taken to a land that's not yours. And guess what? While you're there, you're going to end up serving those people for 400 years. Or serving them doesn't mean for a complete 400 years. Okay. And as we go through the the dynasties and, and the different pharaohs and stuff like that, hopefully I'll be able to point that out to you. Okay. Um, but you will be there for 400 years, okay? Um, so you have 70 people that at the time that Moses brings them out, some have calculated to be close to 2 million people, okay? Um, and so uh, it's interesting that a lot of people try and say there's no way they could have had that many. Well, simple math will tell you at a growth rate of over 6% a year over 400 years, you could very easily get to, to a couple million people. Not to mention... God's kind of in this. So he can make you very prolific, okay? And he does. In the book of Numbers, chapter 1, verse 46, at that point it says there were 603,550 men over the age of 20 men of war. Well, if there's 603,550 men over the age of 20, okay, that would tell me that there's probably about 603,000 women over the age of 20, not to mention all those under the age of 20, okay? And those who maybe are a little bit older that even though they're over 20, they're still not, you know, they really can't go to war, okay? I heard that, John. Uh, you're, amen. I'm over that age, but I ain't going to war. I hear you. Going back here to Exodus chapter 1, it says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now I would tell you, and we'll probably start here next week, okay? I would probably tell you that this is when the new dynasty appeared, okay? This is when a new dynasty uh, was raised up there in Egypt that didn't know um, uh, Joseph, meaning he was not, him and his people were not in favor, okay, of that new dynasty, The interesting thing is, is in Acts chapter 7, verse 17, when uh, this is, uh, when Stephen is, is kind of going over this, he says, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt, this man dealt treacherously with our people, oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. So again, this word another in the Greek is heteros, and it means the other of two. Another one not of the same nature or kind different. There's another of the same kind. There's another of a different kind. This is speaking of another of a different kind, one who the Jewish people were not in favor of. Okay, so now... We read something very interesting in Isaiah 52, verse 4. Not exactly sure how, with this new dynasty that I'm going to show you next week, how this actually applies, but you have to take all the word of God. You can't pick and choose. But here we're told in Isaiah 52, verse 4, For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Somehow this new Egyptian king has some Assyrian blood in him, okay? 
And I would say he's not a pure blood Egyptian. Maybe he fooled some other people in thinking he was, but this tells me he's of Assyrian blood. Okay. So another king was Assyrian by birth, was not a pure Egyptian king by blood. Um, and so uh, the Jewish people fell out of favor with this new dynasty that, that comes up. And so, um, and so next week I'll talk about these different dynasties of kings. Verse 9, And he said to the people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Now, I got to tell you something. It would seem to me if you had a group of people that might go to war against you if an enemy came, you would want to treat them nicely favorably. So when the enemy comes and says, join us, they go, why? We got it really good here. You know, um, we got voting rights. We got this, we got that. We can own land. You know, they let us worship our own God and all these kind of, everything's wa- wonderful. What, what, what are you going to do for us? Well, you'll have to worship our God and we'll put you into slavery. Well, why would I want to join that? And yet they turn around because they might join our enemies. Let's treat them harshly. And let's take the spirit right out of them. And as you know, through history, that doesn't work. But as I've often said, sin is stupid. (laughs) It's stupid. This is the fear of all dictators. They're paranoid of losing their power. And just like all dictators, they try and crush any resistance, or any spirit of the people by laying heavy burdens upon them. Verse 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities from Pithom and Ramses. Now let's talk a little bit about the, the date of Exodus. And I, and I am not... Um, uh, I'm not firm in setting these as being the actual dates. I would say they're very close to them. They could be exactly the date that some scholars say, um, but I would give a little wiggle room because the chronology of the pharaohs and the Egyptian chronology is very muddled. So it's very hard sometimes to put a timeline together. And then other things we discover, we kind of go, oh, well, we got to correct this a little bit. I know that we were adamant this is the time frame, you know, 40 years ago. And then we get other information and other things are unearthed and we start to plug it. Oh, then it means this. Okay, but now this is it. And, you know, and, and so the timeline of Egypt is very difficult. One of the reasons is, is that when things are going poorly for Egypt, they don't record that. Anything that's going to paint them in a bad light, they lost that war. Nowhere in the records of Egypt. And it wasn't until the Greeks came along that they began to put together the actual timeline of the Egyptians. Okay? And so again, if something weird was happening or they were overtaken by some other country for a while or whatever, not written in the record. 
Or if one king was mad at another king previously before them, all of a sudden would knock down their statues, try and write them out of history altogether. Just makes things difficult. And so just remember that as we're talking about these numbers. Yeah, Dave, but this archaeologist says this. Well, this guy said that. I was listening to this guy's commentary. He said this. Okay, I, I get it. There is a lot of stuff out there. But what I would say that especially in the last 50 years, the commentary before that was that there is absolutely no archaeological evidence of the Exodus and a time period when the Jews were there in Egypt. But in the last 50 years, especially in the last 20, it's amazing how all of a sudden new information comes up that we're, I'm going to show you here in a moment. It's, it's just absolutely fascinating. Look what it says here in verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. They built for Pharaoh's supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. This is one of the reasons why many biblical scholars and archaeologists have gone to, towards the dynasty of the Ramesses to be able to see if there's an exodus you know, if, if, if Jewish people were there, Semitic people were there at that time, and they can't find any. And so they're looking at the time period about 1200 BC for when Ramses was Pharaoh, Ramses II, okay? And, and they can't seem to find anything, but it has to be at that time, doesn't it? Because they're building cities, supply cities for Ramses. So it would have to be during his kingship, doesn't it? Well, I don't know, you know? Those who hold to that, uh, you know, there are those who hold to that um, earlier date and some who, for a later date, some look at the date of 1446 BC. Those who look towards the, the later date of, of um, or that earlier date uh, that we have before us at the time of Ramses, since uh, that later date of the time of Ramses of 1250, um, see, because they're, they're building a supply city named after Ramses, plus, you know, Cesar B. DeMille produced the Ten Commandments and called that Pharaoh Ramses. And then, of course, you can't be wrong if DreamWorks comes out with a movie and <laughs> Prince of Egypt. So you have Hollywood now on your side. It's got to be true. Here's a good rule of thought. If, if Hollywood believes something, go the opposite direction. I think that's always good. Okay. So here in Exodus 1.11, Ramses II ruled in about 1250 BC, give or take a couple decades or whatever. But there's no evidence of the Exodus during that period in Egypt. There's no evidence that a Semitic people lived during that time. It's interesting that archaeologist David Roll says that the name Ramses given here in Exodus is actually an anachronism, meaning Moses gives the name of which the city will be known later. Interesting. In other words, Moses gives the name of the city, which later on the readers will be most familiar with of this area. We see this in the book of Genesis, chapter 47, verse 11. As Joseph is, is now bringing his family in from Canaan to be able to live there in the land of Goshen, he calls it the land of Ramses. Look what it says here. Genesis 47, 11, and Joseph situated his father and his brothers, gave them possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land of the land of Ramses. 
Well, that's 400 years before the Exodus takes place. They're first coming into the land. They're going to be there, be afflicted for 400 years. And even back then, they called it the land of Ramses. Why? Because that's that supply city that they're going to build is going to be known as Ramses later on. That, that's why. That's why. So when Moses wrote this Ramses, he's not even going to be born for about 400 years or so. Yet it's also called the land of Goshen. And so it's written for the audience later on that will be reading this to know exactly where this area is going to be. But according to scripture, we actually see an earlier date for the Exodus. In 1 Kings 6.1, it says, And it came to pass in the 480th year, after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. We know that Solomon's temple was, was completed in 960 B.C. Well, if, if that was 483 years or 480 years afterwards, that would put the Exodus at 1440 B.C. Okay. Judges 11.26, when God raised up uh, Jephthah as a judge to rescue Israel from the cruel Ammonites, Jephthah recounts and is talking to the Ammonite captain. He says he recounts and says that Israel lived in the towns of Heshbon for 300 years. So he says, while Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages and Aor and, and its villages and all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? If that was actually yours and God didn't give it to us, back then, 300 years earlier, then why didn't you claim it then is what he's saying. Well, Jephthah's reign was 1100 BC, subtracting 300 years brings us to Joshua's conquest about 1400 BC. Okay, so we're around that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, you get to 1440 BC. Okay, so the supply city that Israel built was actually, we're going to find out here in a moment, the city of Avarice. Archaeologists have recently uncovered the last 50 years or so this tell. When, when, you, when you go to Israel with us, you'll, you'll go to Tel Dan, you'll go to all these places that have the word tell before. Tell means mound, okay? And it's a place where uh, 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 one power, you know, destroys another and then builds a, a city on it, then that gets destroyed, another city's been on. And so you could see, um, you know, all, all these different uh, nations that, that were underneath these cities because they destroyed the previous nation. So you have this tell that you're able to go down and be able to see how people lived, you know, hundreds of years before uh, they were destroyed and things like that. So you have these tell, these mounds that give the history of what goes on in that place. So that's what the word tell means. It means mound, okay? So you have this mound where there's an excavation going on, and it's called Tel Eldaba. Interesting. It's an incredible place. And they discovered the city of Ramses. And guess what? No evidence of any Semitic people living there at that time. And it dates back to about 1250 BC. However, as they continued to dig down deeper, they found the city of Avarice, placed with a big Semitic population who came from Canaan. These people were shepherds 
as there were many bones of sheep and goats in this area, uh, uh, avarice shows these Semitics living there for a few hundred years, and then they vanish, completely abandoned. This is what Tel Aldaba kind of looks like and what they were doing here in this model. So they first dig down, and there's the town of Ramses. And then they dig down a little further, and they find the town of Avarice right there. This is what Tel Aldaba uncovered. Don't confuse this with another site, you know, north of the Nile Delta, where they discovered the prehistoric city. They call that El Daba Dabadu. <laughs> so that's different. That, don't, don't go there. Different site. We're just interested in Tel El Daba. All right. And so in this city of Avarice, check this out. Okay. In this city of Avarice that they've discovered here, a professor, Manfred Bitek, discovered an Egyptian palace among all these Semitic dwellings. And then in the courtyard of this palace, first off, why an Egyptian palace amongst all these Semitic people? Has 12 columns in this, by the way. In this courtyard inside, there's 12 columns. Is that possible the 12 sons of Jacob? And is it possible that this palace belonged to Joseph? Possible. Now, we also find in this courtyard, you'll see this numbered here, 12 grave sites with little chapels built over them. 12 of them. And yet one of them has a pyramid above it. Well, what's, why 12? 12 sons of Jacob, maybe? Why one with a pyramid? Joseph, perhaps, since he was the prime minister there of Egypt at one time? The interesting thing here is that it's very extraordinary for there to be any sort of pyramid as a type of a chapel over a tomb. And the reason that is, is because the only ones that were honored to be to have a pyramid would be your pharaohs or queens of pharaohs when they died. And so for this person to be honored like a pharaoh but isn't a pharaoh is very, very interesting. What's also interesting is that inside the tomb, there was also a statue. There was a statue that had red hair, a throw stick over its shoulder, a unique symbol of his livelihood as a shepherd. There's no other statue like it in all of Egypt. The statue had red hair, yellow skin, which is how the Egyptians depicted those from Canaan. The throw stick is also how the Egyptians depicted the shepherds from Canaan or Semitic people. Here's the next picture of that. There's the Dutch boy haircut, okay, and this shoulder piece right here. This right here, we'll show a bigger picture here in a moment, okay, but this is the back of the shoulder right here, back of the shoulder that we see. We see a throw stick right there, uh, but on the back of the shoulder, it has stripes and there's red and yellow and other colors to show this robe that he has on. Go ahead and show that next picture. 
Look at that. That kind of looks like a robe of multicolors. Now, I taught when we went through Genesis that the word multicolor robe isn't there in the Hebrew. It just means to the hands and to the feet that this robe covered. And so in the Hebrew, you can't really depict a multicolored. But here, this statue is telling me something different. You have a multicolored robe statue of a man that is being depicted as a Semite from the area of Canaan. Now, who could that be? I would submit to you that speaks of Joseph. All these things have been discovered over the last 30 years or so. Now, a lot of this I got from a guy by the name Timothy Mahoney who uh, has a video series called The Patterns of Evidence. You all need to get that. There's so much in there, there's no way in the world I can use all the stuff that he used, okay? So I just kind of took some of the highlights and everything. But I got to tell you some of the Patterns of Evidence by Timothy Mahoney. Uh, Patterns of Evidence Exodus, uh, Timothy Mahoney, is, is worth you to purchase that and to uh, watch that on your own, okay? Um, he does a great job of also showing that Moses wrote the five books of the Bible, um, because uh, most of your scholars would say, hey, human writing wasn't invented then. That came many years later after Moses, so there's no way he could uh, write that. Um, he's able to show that that's not true. Um, he's able to take this. Uh, there's like been six uh, places that have been discovered that have uh, hieroglyphics, Egyptian hieroglyphics, and next to it, a uh, written language, script, the beginning of the alphabet. And the beginning of that alphabet is way too similar to Hebrew than any other language. And so it shows that there was someone at the time of Egypt that was, in a sense, playing around with hieroglyphics and and coming up with a written language. Now, who would that be? And he's able to bring it back to be able to show that it's most likely Joseph that Joseph is the one that created the Hebrew language. It's amazing. It's just absolutely fantastic. And so I really encourage you to get that video series, Patterns of Evidence by Timothy Mahoney. It will blow your mind. Let's pray. 